We're, uh, we're, we're in a series right now that I am so excited for. It's a series called Twisted. This series is all about unwrapping or unraveling what we're calling the not-so-hidden truths in God's Word. And, and kind of as we're going through this series, one of the reasons why I think it is a perfect series is because if you are a guest here, and maybe this is your first time at Encounter, maybe this is the first time in church in a really, really long time. But for whatever reason, wherever you come from, today is a perfect Sunday because if, if you haven't heard any of the stories that we're going to talk about today or any of the stories that people usually talk about in church, if they're totally new to you, this is a perfect series to start attending because, because you're getting sort of the, the, the unfiltered, sort of like raw truth of the, right from the Bible for the get-go. It's not cluttered by any of the cultural or any of the VeggieTales type stuff that, that sometimes muddies some of the water around it. No offense to VeggieTales. I might get an email about that later. But on the other hand, if you grew up on these stories, and I mean, if this is... If these are things that you could tell like backwards and forwards and sideways and you just know them so very well, I think this is a perfect series for you too because, because you're hearing maybe a new perspective or a fresh idea. You're hearing it preached or maybe taught in a way that, that maybe you haven't had very much before. Maybe you kind of have too much of the cultural VeggieTales stuff and, and now we get a chance to rediscover the Jesus that's, that's preached about, the Jesus that's pointed to in all of these old stories even if they take place long before Jesus was ever born. I got to say, throughout this series, this has been just an incredible experience for me personally, because uh, I don't know if I've had it so many times where different people would come up to me um, after, after the worship experience and, and just share what God is up to in their lives. I mean, I had people come up to me after the first installment about the, the parable of the man looking for a treasure, and, and just in tears, right, and saying, I, I always thought of myself as the guy who's looking for the treasure. I never once thought about how Jesus was seeking out, and seeking out to, to find and save me. I never once thought about that I was Jesus' treasure and I was his prized possession that he would sell, that he would give over everything for. Just an incredible experience. Last week, the story of Cain and Abel. Somebody coming up and saying, I never thought about how, how I don't have a chance at being, at being Abel in the story, that, that I'm Cain in the story, that Jesus is Abel, and, and that I was responsible in part, right? We are all responsible for the death of Jesus, the reason why that had to happen. And, and it's just this overwhelming sense of God's presence way back in these old stories and, and, and cast in a new light. I just thank you for sharing with me and now with everybody else just what God has been up to here in this community. Um, just sharing, I guess it's uh, sharing about, about, the, about how we're formed and about the next steps in our lives. Now, when it comes to formation, when it comes to next steps, um, you see what I'm doing there? This is a transition. Um, I'm a professional. It's okay. Uh, what? Well, a lot of the decision, a lot of our, our life is shaped by the decisions that we make. Somebody told me one time that your life is little more, maybe by it, maybe not, but it's interesting to think about. Your life is little more than the sum of the decisions that you make. So choose wisely. And one of the, one of the things that like pops out if, you are, if you're trying to follow Jesus with your life, maybe you're in an exploration stage, one of the things that tends to pop out with, with making these tough decisions is, is what's God's will? For all these decisions. Now, we've preached about this a lot around here, and it comes up even more all the time, because we always have people like, I don't know, I don't know what God's will when it comes to like getting married, I don't know if and when to get married, if and when to have kids, when to have more kids, when to like bring a pet into the house, which is an even bigger step, by the way, I just got gerbils and it's a whole thing, so I recommend <laughs> like fish or something that's not furry, but like whatever the deal, we've got these big 
and small decisions to make. And oftentimes we want to know, like, God, what's your will? And if you, and if you hang out in church long enough, somebody might end up telling you, hey, why don't you put out a fleece test? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because maybe you grew up in church. And maybe you know what this story is all about. When somebody tells you, hey, if you want to know what God's will is, put out a fleece test. Because, because this is a story that references a story in the Bible, Judges chapter 6, which we're going to go to in just a minute. A story from Gideon, a story where he puts out a fleece test to try to uncover the will of God. Now, as we're going to dig into this story and read it in just a minute, I, I want to point out something, though. Because the, the series that we're in right now is called Twisted. So some of you have been coming for a few weeks now, or a few years now, kind of start to know that I think that there's a twist coming a little bit later on in the message. So I don't want you to miss it, because I know you're distracted, you're thinking about lunch plans or whatever you know, you're going to do with golf with dad or something, whatever your Father's Day thing is after this. I don't want you to miss out on, on the twist that I think God has in store for us this morning. So I'm going to just, I'm going to lay it all out for you right now. This is not a story about finding the will of God. It's not. And if you've kind of like understood the story, the Gideon story as a story about how to, how to uncover God's will, if you've understood this story as, as, as like, well, yeah, I mean, I could, I could do a fleece test. And that's one way of many ways that I guess that God is going to show me what his will is. I want to tell you, it's not a story about uncovering God's will. And just so we're like all on the same page, it doesn't have to be an animal like skin or her hide that, that, that you put out. By the way, this is a real one that was offered to us, which is kind of cool and just totally irrelevant to the rest of the deal. It doesn't have to do with an animal skin or an actual fleece, right? I want to suggest to you that any time in your prayer life that you ask God for a sign, Anytime in your prayer life that you ask God for a miracle, anytime that you ask God in your prayer life, God, if such and such is your will, I need you to make it abundantly clear to me. God, if such and such is your will, I need you to get my husband on board, which maybe is the miracle. I don't know. Anytime in your prayer life when you pray, God, if this is your will, I need the skies to part and open the big booming voice to shout out that this is the path forward that I should take. Anytime you come close, to asking God for a sign, a miracle, to make things clear, for a voice from heaven, I think that what you're essentially doing is you're asking God for a fleece test. And that's okay, except you ought to know that the story may not be about what you think it is, that the story is about something darker. The story is about something a little bit more sinister than that. But to, to unpack that, I really have to share with you what the story is. So there's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. By the way, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, go ahead and take that with you. We give those away every week, and we love to give them away. So if, if you don't have one or if you just like ours better, go ahead and take it. We're going to go to Judges chapter 6. But before we jump in and start reading some of the verses in Judges chapter 6, I want to kind of I want to give you, I guess, an, an overview of what this book of Judges is all about. You see, the, the book of Judges takes place... Uh, maybe one or two generations after, uh, after Exodus, after Moses, the leader of the Israelite people, brought them 10 plagues, right? Saved them from Egypt, the land of slavery. They wandered around the desert for 40 years, a whole generation. And then they came into their promised land. And about a generation after they settled into their promised land, the book of Judges takes place. And what's so troubling about the book of Judges is that is that it almost, it almost speaks to the hopelessness 
of the situation in Israel at that time. Uh, what's, what's troubling about Judges is that the people of God are caught up in this, in this endless cycle, it seems, of, uh, of, of doubt, that this endless cycle of disobedience that followed by God's discipline in their life that follows by deliverance after they cry out. You see what I did to help you remember it if you're note-taking. Uh, <laughs> disobedience, discipline, deliverance, repeat, repeat, repeat. In each one of these, the deliverance comes in the form of a leader, typically regional, that God brings up to save these people, to deliver them for a season, and then the whole thing starts back over again. We're going to go to Judges chapter 6, and we're going to go, we're going to read this story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. And we're going to read this story, and in, in, in Gideon, I want you to, to also be aware of how hopeless the situation is, because they were just disobedient, and God sent the Midianites to come through and, and just like take everything, and then do it again and again and again, they didn't inhabit the land. They didn't take over the land. The Midianites just came to take things from the land. They're in a season of perpetually being robbed or being mugged, like again and again and again. What's fun about the Bible, I think, and maybe this is just my Bible nerd coming out, is that when you start holding it up to some like historical archaeological stuff, you can see that the invention, and I'm not making this up, the weaponization of the camel was happening right around this same time in history. And if you're like imagining the weaponization of a camel, like you can chuckle, that's cool, we're in church, it's all right, God likes humor. But, but seriously, um, what's, what's daunting about this for the Israelites is that at no point in history were people able to, to pass as much ground, as much land, an army as quickly as they were now that they had camels, which could go very, very long distances without stopping. So usually they'd get a huge warning when an invading army would come because they would have to camp out several stages and their scouts could see it and then hurry back, tell everybody they'd be prepared. It would, uh, it, it really put the, put the X on, put the kibosh on, on raids. Now with a camel, the Midianites were coming and they could just be at the doorstep in no time and they'd just take everything and leave totally beside the point, but I just thought it was interesting anyway. So we pick up the story just as the, the, the Israelites are in this season of discipline, and they're crying out for a deliverer, and they don't know where it's going to come. We, they don't know how God is going to deliver them. And then he sends Gideon. So from Judges chapter 6, we pick it up in verse 11. In verse 11, where it says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was, get this, threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Uh, just a quick note on that. We've preached on this one before. I'm not going to spend a long time, but typically when you're, crushing, when you're threshing wheat, you'd crush the wheat kernels on a blanket, go up to a tall hill where it's windy, you throw the kernels up in the air. The wind would blow away the chaff, the wheat would settle down into the blanket again. You could, you could separate the wheat and the chaff that way. Gideon is found doing this like underground. Gideon is doing this in a literal hole in the ground called a wine press. Gideon is hiding out in his parents' basement, right, when the angel of the Lord comes to him. I just, I want you to see the kind of like, uh, like, like character that Gideon is. I, I want you to see that his heart is one of, of doubt and, and, and of skepticism. He is not the extraordinary hero that the people of Israel were hoping for. Nevertheless, we continue in verse 12. When the Lord God appeared to Gideon, 
The angel says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon, right, Gideon is, is downstairs in the wine press. <laughs> and he kind of looks up at the angel. And I got to imagine, it's like, are you serious? Like, you realize I'm hiding right now, that, that I am terrified of the Midianites coming at any moment. You realize that I am doing this task in, in one of the worst geographic locations that I could possibly be doing this, this task. And the reason is, I'm terrified <laughs> that somebody's going to come and see me. But the angel says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. If I could just ask you to hang on to that language in the midst of the doubt, the skepticism, the, the, not the extraordinary hero that Gideon is, if I could just ask you to hang on to that mighty warrior phrase until the end of the message. Verse 13, we'll continue. And I love how polite he is. He says, pardon me, my Lord. <laughs> pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. Um, but the Lord, but if the Lord is with us, and this is a hugely important question, why has all this happened to us? Now, that's a part of the Bible that I just love because he asks a question that all of us at one point or another have asked. Like if we have the opportunity to speak to an angel of the Lord, or if we have the opportunity to sense what God is maybe laying on our hearts or what to do next, it's a question that we've all asked before. If you're with me, God, why has all this happened? Within, embedded within the question, is there this, this, this assumption that you can hear from the part of Gideon that asks, I'm looking around and no longer up, and right now, when I'm looking around, all I can ask is, why is this happening? Embedded within the question is Gideon, as our, as our anti-hero, right? Gideon going, I'm looking at my circumstances. I'm looking around more than I'm looking up. And so I can't take my eyes off from all of this and ask, why is all of this happening? Like I said, we've all done that. We've all taken our eyes off from the vertical and looked horizontal and asked God, I don't see you. I don't see you moving anywhere around. God, if you are for us, why have the Midianites come down on us? God, if you are for us, why haven't I found the right job yet? God, if you are for us, why is my marriage still crummy? God, if you are for us, why don't my kids listen to me more? God, if you are for us, then why am I so dissatisfied with so many different areas of my life? God, if you are for us, then why does the struggle keep raging on and on and on? Why, does it, why doesn't it seem like I can claim any kind of victory over any area of darkness in my heart or sin in my life? God, if you're for us, why is all of this happening around here? And before we read God's answer to this, I just want to say, isn't it cool? Isn't it cool that God in his infinite wisdom has given us this question that was asked 3,300 years ago by Gideon, and it's just as pointed, it's just as loaded, it's just as relevant today as 3,300 years ago when Gideon was first asking it. I think so. And God answers, but he doesn't answer in a way that I think Gideon was expecting. Why has all this happened to us, verse 14? And the Lord turned to him and he said, now he doesn't give an answer, he gives a command. The Lord turned to him and he said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? 
And he's so polite again in verse 15, getting a response. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, my Lord. Now, Lord, it's an all lowercase, so you've got to read it as like, sir. Pardon me, sir, uh, getting a reply. How can I save Israel? And now he puts up a couple of smoke screens. I think it's interesting to, to read them. And we take them at face value. He says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh is like a half tribe of Israel. I mean, it's like the lower end of, tri of the 12 tribes of Israel. Apparently there were clans and he's like the weakest clan. And not only that, he goes on. Oh, and also I am the least in my family. So you've got like, I'm on the bottom end of the tribe, I'm on the bottom end of the clan, I'm on the bottom end of the family. Like God, you don't want me. And you know, and he's right. <laughs> he's totally right. You don't want me. You know how, you know how we know that he doesn't want Gideon? Because Gideon is such a misfit and an oddball, a doubter and a skeptic. Gideon is such a, mis, a, a misfit for this thing that he doesn't even know that God loves to use misfits and oddballs, right? Like if Gideon knew the stories that, that he was supposed to grow up on, he would know that God has a long-standing history already by this point in the story of God in the Bible, already that God loves to choose the misfits and oddballs. That makes those of you who are misfits and oddballs feel really, really great right now, right? You're welcome for that little bit. Um, when it came time for God to make a promise to somebody, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He doesn't choose a king. He doesn't choose a queen or a princess or a prince. He chooses a couple in their 90s. And they ended up having one kid, one. So much for a great nation, right? And then that one kid, Isaac, grows up. He has twins. He has one of them that's, that's older and bigger and stronger and more accomplished named Esau, and he's got a weaker, younger, smaller, less accomplished one that they all kind of nicknamed the trickster or the deceiver because that's the kind of level of integrity that he had. And you know who God chooses? <laughs> Jacob over Esau. Like, like God, you're, you're doing the whole thing wrong. I mean, take some advice. You want to choose the, the bigger, stronger, more accomplished one every time. And God says, no, no, that's not how I work. If Gideon would have known the stories, he would have known how much of a misfit he was and how perfect he was for this thing that God was calling him to do. So he throws up these smoke screens to God. And he says, God, you don't want me. You don't want me. I'm the weakest clan in the weirdest tribe, and I'm the smallest, you know, in my family, and God says, you're totally right, I got the wrong house, and I'll see it. No, no, right? That's not what happens at all. I got to read the stories. Um, verse 16, verse 16, the Lord answers, and he says, I will be with you, and you'll strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replied, all right, if now I have found favor in your eyes, he goes, give me a sign. Give me a sign that it's really, that it's really you talking to me, God. God, I want you to prove it to me. God, you got to make it abundantly clear. God, you got to get my wife on board. You got to get my kids on board. God, you got to open up the heavens. God, you got you to give me a sign. And you know what? The whole fleece thing, it's not part of the story yet. This is like the sign before the sign. He goes to the angel and he says, okay, like, this is the sign, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present you an offering. I'm going to make some soup, pour out the broth. I'm going to bring the little, little soaking meat nuggets and the, and the unleavened bread. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set it on a rock and you're going to do something cool with that. And this is going to be the sign. You're going to, like, take that somehow. And the angel's like, okay, go ahead. 
And, and Gideon pours out the little, you know, thing. He's got the little soaking meat nuggets, which sounds super appetizing. And he lays this like wet, soggy mess on a rock and steps back. And we read in verse 21, the angel of the Lord touched the soggy little meat nuggets. No, it just says meat. And the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand in fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared, presumably not before dropping the mic, right? <laughs> like, holy cow, is that an incredible sign? And you know what? It's incredible enough to get a misfit like Gideon on board to, to go and do this thing. So Gideon decides, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to defeat all the Midianites. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to rid their, their God, their Baal worship from the holy land of Israel. So we're going to be rededicated back to Yahweh, back to the God of our people, back to how things are supposed to be. And so he summons up all this courage and all this energy. And he goes, he goes and runs. He like kicks one and knocks it over. And it goes back. <laughs> Because he's absolutely afraid, two things happen. The first one is that he goes and he finds a, a bail altar that's on his dad's property <laughs> because presumably he had keys. <laughs> and he's like, that's, that's kind of the easiest one I can get to. And the next one, it says, and the Bible just outright tells us, here's the deal, verse 27. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than the daytime. I want us to see, even with the sign, even with the angel, he's a doubter, he's a skeptic. He is not the extraordinary leader that the people of God, of Israel, of any of us, really wanted to see. Following the story, God, I think, miraculously provides protection around Gideon. They come after him, and through some smooth talking of some other people that God provided along the way, they don't do to him what they want to do to him for, for knocking over the Baal altar. It was easy after all. It was his dad's property, and he had the keys. Not a clever man either. God provides his protection. God even provides this huge, huge gathering of people, a huge army that, that surrounds him, even though, he's, even though he's a coward, even though he's a doubter, even though he's a skeptic. And he gets the vision again to say, it's time. It's time to go after the Midianites. It's time to go after them and not just knock an altar down, not just knock an idol down at night on my dad's property. It's time to go into the heart of them, the 100,000 plus army, and it's time to fight them head on. But wait, I just need one more sign. I just need one more thing. And so, and so Gideon, verse 39, Gideon said to God, if you'll save Israel by my hand, key phrase, as you have promised, right? He knew, important note, he knew what was asked of him. If you'll save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, verse 37, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor, if there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So you get the, you get the deal. He, he's going get the fleece going on. He lays it all out there. He goes, if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, like that's going to be my sign. Anybody else like mildly annoyed with Gideon at this point? 
If not just annoyed with Gideon, is anybody annoyed with Gideon because he's making this message so long because of his doubts and his skepticism? Like we really, we have to walk through the whole thing to, to really understand it. See, I thought the angel, I thought sending an angel would be good, you know? I thought that'd be enough. And then when the angel does the cool fire thing with the soggy meat bits, like I thought that would be a pretty cool sign. When God provides this, this protection around him after knocking over his dad's idol, I thought that'd be a pretty cool sign. When, when God somehow brings an army that stands behind this doubting skeptic coward, I thought that was a pretty good sign of God. When he lays out the fleece and says, this has to be wet, everything else dry, I think this has got to be enough, right? Wrong. Because God... Because Gideon decides, you know, if it really was dewy last night, and this is, this is pretty squishy and could probably hold a lot of water. So even outside of like God's miraculous sign and, and clarity, you know what could happen is, is this would hold a lot of water and the ground would probably dry up a lot quicker. Okay, God, one more thing, right? And he hatches his last plan. He goes, then Gideon said to God, hey, <clears throat> so don't be angry with me. <laughs> I love that line. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time I need you to make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered in dew. Yeah, that would be impressive. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground covered with dew. By my count, it's at least his sixth or seventh miraculous sign that he got to do exactly what he knew he was supposed to do. You see why I'm saying this isn't a story, friends, about, about uncovering or about discovering the will of God. Gideon knew exactly what the will of God was from the very outset of the story when the angel found him and said, this is the will of God in your life. You are going to save Israel from, like, who? I mean, that could be, like, a lot of different things. But, no, from the Midianites, like those dudes on camels that are coming every day, it's them. You know where their army is. There's 100,000 of them plus. It's them. The will of God is clear in Gideon's life. This is not a story about uncovering or discovering God's mysterious will. This is a story about God trying to get Gideon to no longer seek the will of God, but to seek the person of God. I think that God hangs out with Gideon for so long because God doesn't so much care if Gideon knows what the will of God is or what the specific plan of God is or what all the details are in the way, God hangs out and hangs with Gideon for so long because God wants Gideon to trust him, to, to pursue God's heart, to pursue God's person. And God says, listen, whatever it's going to take. And so long, he says to Gideon in not so many words, the subtext, I think, so long as you're trying not so much to find my will, but to change my will, we're going to keep doing this, and we're going to keep playing it and replaying it until you give up trying to change my will and just accept my will as an extension of my person, of my heart. 
See, it's like, it's like this. Sometimes when somebody presents to you the opportunity to do a fleece test, you already know what God's will is. Somebody told you what God's will is. You know what God has in store. You just don't want to do it. It's, it's like this. There's a guy that you may have been dating for a while, and he's not a Christian, and you grew up a certain way, and, and, you, and you had some ideas that maybe this wasn't totally the right, and, and, and you were skeptical, and you, you had these ideas, but you know what? He's a really nice guy. He's a good guy, and he's a cute guy, right? And so you kind of hung in there, and then things start moving really quickly, and he's awesome and great, and then he proposes, and you hesitate, and you don't know what to say. And you lay out a fleece test, or you ask God to make it clear. But really in that moment, what you're asking for isn't to know the will of God. What you're asking for in that moment is to change the will of God. If I could ask you to do something, there's a Bible in the, under the chair in front of you. Just, I won't ask you to do anything. Come forward, raise it, nothing. Just grab it. Just reach under the chair and just to hold on to the Bible. I won't even ask you to open it. But just hold a Bible or maybe a phone without turning it down, face down, and just hold it in your hand and think about the Bible apps or websites you have access to with that thing. Just hold the Word of God. And then ask so many times why you would exchange this for this, right? Like we look at Gideon and he say, if only God would send an angel, if only God would light the fire, meat thing, if only, if only God would provide me this protection, if only God would surround me with an army, if only God would do a fleece thing, and then another fleece thing, if only God would show me what his will is. And God says, you're still looking for the specific answers, but I never wanted you to know the specific answers. I wanted you to pursue my person. I wanted you to pursue my heart. And so when I gave you my holy, inspired, infallible book, I didn't give it a book full of all the future predictions and almanac of everything that's going to happen in your life and every life after that. I gave you a book that was the story of what I'm into, of what I'm doing from the beginning of time till the end of time. I give you a story that reveals to you my heart that I am the God who uses the misfits and the oddballs, that I am the God of the Gideons and the Dirks and the Johns, and the, and the Joes, and the Jessicas, and the lots more names. I am the God of the misfits. I am the gods of the left behinds. I am the gods of the oddball. I am the God of you and me. That's who God says that he is. And then he says he's got a bonus. Right? He goes, if you, if you want to know if, if you want to know if you can trust him, like Gideon, the doubter, the skeptic. Gideon, by the way, never stopped. I don't think he ever stopped doubting God. I don't think Gideon ever stopped doubting God from when God gathered his army of 32,000 people and, and sent 22,000 of them home. I don't think Gideon all of a sudden just didn't doubt and wasn't a skeptic or a coward any longer. I don't think he became that extraordinary hero when his army was parred down to, to one on a hundred. I don't think so. I don't think that Gideon stopped being a doubter and started being extraordinary. When God took his army of 10,000 and sent 9,700 of them home, so only 300 were left to fight the 100,000 plus Midianites, I don't think that Gideon ever stopped doubting. 
I don't think God, I don't think Gideon ever stopped doubting what God was going to do in the world, but I'll tell you this, that God never stopped doubting what he could do with all of the Gideons among us. That God looked at this failure, this myth, this oddball, and he said, this is a guy, this is a guy that I can use. This is a guy that I can do incredible things with. This is a guy that I can defeat a battle, an army of 100,000 plus with. Not because of who he is, but God's saying, but because of who I am and what I'm capable of doing in somebody else's life. Gideon never stopped doubting what God was doing, and God never stopped doubting what he could do in the life of Gideon and everyone that would follow in his footsteps. And you know how we know. Not because of an angel, not because of a fire, not because of some protection, not because of an army behind us, not because of a fleece or another fleece, not even because we have a thousand and one stories of God moving in the Bibles that we have access to that Gideon didn't. The reason why we know that God is on our side, that God goes before us, that God believes in what he is going to do in our lives, the reason why we know is because of an economics principle. <laughs> Somebody shared with, this, with me a while ago, and I just, I love it so much, I got to share it with you. Is, I know you're going to take economics from a, from a guy who studied ancient Greek in college, but just hang in, hang in there with me. Someone told me that the value of a thing is the price that it'll bring. I, when I was in high school, I had a beautiful, to me, cherry red 1992 Jeep Wrangler, which at that point wasn't old enough to be cool and it wasn't new enough to be good. But like, I loved it. I thought it was the coolest car in the world. It had a salvage title and a broken passenger side seat, but I still thought it was the coolest car in the world. It was invaluable to me. It helped me meet my wife, who will still say to this day that she didn't even know about my Jeep when we started dating, but I know the truth behind that. It was an invaluable vehicle to me, right up until the point where it came time to sell it. When I started listing it, in those days it was newspapers because I'm old, I, I listed it at a price and I realized with every single person that would call, I would tell them it had a salvage title, it was stolen, gutted, lots of things are broken, but it's awesome. Help me meet my wife. They didn't buy the story. And the price kept dropping and dropping and dropping. See, I wasn't totally aware as a then 18-year-old that the value of a thing is the price it'll bring. It doesn't matter what you think it's worth. What can you get for How much does it cost? I know that some of you right now might feel like misfits and oddballs. The weakest, littlest, least likely people that God would ever choose to use in this world. But when we simply use economics to say the price, the value of a thing, the value of a life is the price it'll bring. Consider the story of God that when he had to put a price on you, the price that he was willing to go up to was the cost of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And we know from his story that it was not an easy price to pay. But we also know that that's how much God cares. That's how much God values the misfits and the oddballs 
That's how much God values each one of us doubters and skeptics who may never doubt what God is, may never stop doubting what God is doing in our lives. But God is the one who's never going to stop doubting what he can do when he comes into our lives. I you to stand up and let's pray to that God, the God of heaven and earth, who uses skeptics and doubters and misfits like all of us. Let's pray. A gracious God in heaven, Lord, in a new way today, I pray that we turn our hearts over to you. God, some of us may have been approaching you with a heart that is mostly in your hands. And God, help us to take that last 5%, that last 10 that last little bit that we keep to ourselves and hand it over to you with an open hand and say, God, not, not my will, but yours be done. God, give us the courage to pray that we're no longer going to, we're no longer going to change your will or try to change your will as if that was ever possible, but God, we'll accept the holy things that you have in store for us, that God, we will seek your heart and your person and decisions and your will will follow after that. In all of these things we pray, a new resurrected life, in the name of Jesus, amen.